So we talked about, we sang about impossible things. We're going to look at some of those impossible things today, actually. As we continue our series, Without Faith, It is Impossible to Please God, uh, anchored in Hebrews 11. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at the world and faith, uh, this created order that we have all around us. We're going to be focusing on, actually, Hebrews 11, verse 3, which says this, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We're going to camp on that for a little bit. Uh, before we do that, let me introduce yourself to, to you if you, don't, if you don't know. I'm Jack Sup, one of the new elders around here. Uh, and the, 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 re, the, reason I, the reason I got the opportunity to, to give you this message is because I'm a physics major. Uh, Master of Science, Drexel University, class of 1982. Yes, I'm that old. Um, but before we get into all this fun stuff, um, let's, let's do an absolutely critical, pivotal part of it is uh, go to Lord in prayer for a little bit, right? And invite his blessing on our time. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the Sovereign One. You are the Almighty. You are the Maker and Redeemer You are our God. Uh, Lord, we pray that what we've done so far this morning has been honoring to you and that you have been pleased with it. We pray pray that uh, likewise that will continue with the rest of our worship experience here. I pray also for my brothers and sisters that they will be encouraged in their faith this morning, that they will move out of here today into the world that you've made, the world around them, their spheres of influence, and be bolstered in their knowledge and and faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is the foundation for everything that we're going to be talking about this morning. So I want to camp on this for just a little bit. In particular, I want to discuss the term universe here. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. The term universe, this was surprising to me. This has been one of my favorite verses for a long time, and I was expecting to find the word cosmos here. Uh, You remember Pastor Walker talked to you about the cosmos some weeks back, the created order of things. It's not. It's the Greek ion, which we get the English term eon from, and it actually literally means age. What is going on here? And so I I looked at some other translations and started researching and and trying to understand. In King James, it says the worlds were framed. The universe was created. The worlds were framed. NAS says the worlds were prepared. And so I got thinking and studying and looking at all this. This is a richer first than even I had imagined going into it. And what it's kind of speaking of here, I believe, is that God not only created the cosmos, uh, this material world, this universe that we see around us, but he created the plan for the whole business too at the same time. He, from the beginning, knew where he was going with all of this stuff, and that plan is unfolding just exactly the way he had intended from the very beginning. Um, it's interesting to find that same word is in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Rendered the world here in one 
uh, chapter 1, verse 2, same term that says universe in chapter 11 and verse 3. Um, interestingly as well, uh, when it says that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible, those things that are visible, the Greek term there is where we get our word phenomenon from. It's, it's uh, interesting that it, it kind of translates directly over in the English. And so what, what, what the author is saying is that God didn't start with some pre-existing whatever stuff, any pre-existing things or, or patterns. He called it all into existence by the power of his word from, from nothing. Uh, he invested his energy, his power, his authority to make this created order, uh, as we say, ex nihilo, from nothing. Okay, so with that in mind, we're going to start launching into some observations about this world. Um, and my goal in all of this is if you uh, are inclined to believe in this God that we talk about around here, I want to encourage you in that faith. Build you up. You have very good reason to believe. This is a rational faith that we have. This is not a blind faith. Uh, as a physicist, of course, Albert Einstein, one of my heroes, right? He said this, science without religion is lame. It's lame, right? Science can tell you a lot about what goes on in the world, but in terms of real fundamental important things, it's lame. On the other hand, religion without science is blind. People, you don't have to walk around in this life thinking you've got to cling to your faith against all objective reality. The objective reality supports our faith. Uh, oh, by the way, if you happen to have come in here for whatever reason and, and you think you're an atheist, um, I'm going to be undermining your faith. I, I'm not trying to be mean or anything. I just can't avoid it. So, you know, we'll just see how all this goes. So here we go. Let's launch in. The, the thing you need to understand is that there's always a faith component in all of this, and there's a willingness to believe. It's a heart question as much as a mind question. Uh, Norman Geisler said this in his book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. He said, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe, yet he has also left some ambiguity so as not to compel the unwilling. God is not in the compulsion mode in this age. He's in the wooing mode, right? So if you're determined to not believe, okay, he'll let you go that, that way. It's not, it's not a happy path, I'll warn you. Uh, the old mathematician, physicist, theologian, Blaise Pascal said it this way. There's enough light for those to see who only desire to see and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. Right. The best way to render this thought, perhaps, is in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, where Paul said, For his, meaning God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Um, now, people, what I'm going to show you is a bunch of stuff coming up that in Paul's day... Uh, a lot of it was not even beginning to be understood. So if he said that we were without excuse then, a couple thousand years later, we're even much less with an excuse for not believing in this great God of ours. So we're going to run through some of that stuff today. Um, what I wanted to start out with was a little demonstration. What's the talk about science without a demonstration, right? Uh, 
basically to illustrate my aha moment. The, the, the situation was I was in, a, in one of my college physics classes. I was a sophomore, junior level class. I don't know what it was. And, all right, I didn't do it in the first service, but I'm going to lay it on you. We were talking about the fact that there are off-diagonal elements, elements on the moment of inertia tensor, right, which means absolutely nothing to the vast majority of you, right? So instead of trying to explain that, I thought I'd show you what that really means. I don't know if you've ever played with a, with a gyroscope, um, it, this, what is in my hand, is basically pictured there, the exact same thing. Now, you know intuitively, right, that I can't support uh, this whole thing by just one end. If I just let go, it'll fall, right? Gravity will pull it down. But I want to show you a very interesting effect. What a gyroscope is, it's a cage with a fairly massive thing in the middle that can spin around. So I can get this thing going. What you're going to observe is that I can now suspend it from one side and it doesn't fall. What is up with that, right? So, so I said, hey, hey, as we're talking about this stuff, why? Why are there those off-diagonal elements? Why does that work? That's a mystery. Um, and then the professor kind of looked at me quizzically. <laughs> like, what do you mean, why? What's this why? Um, science can't answer the why. All right? That's why getting back to Einstein's point, science can only go so far. It can tell you what's going on. We can give our mathematical equations and all that fun stuff. But it can't tell you why any of that's happening. The why in all that is fundamentally because God says so. All right? He made up the rules, and the universe obeys his rules. So that was my moment where it dawned on me, wow, there's, there's something more going on. The physics is not the end of it all. Uh, there's something bigger or something transcendent in all of this. Kepler said this, ancient astronomer, he said, science is the process of thinking God's thoughts after him. And I really like that way of thinking about it. As a scientist myself, this is what I like to think it's all about. So we're going to think some of God's thoughts after him as we jump into Genesis chapter 1 here. Uh, a little, let's start with a little geek humor. Uh, so God said all of that and there was light. That's, that's Genesis chapter 1 in the New Physics translation. And uh, there isn't really such a thing. Uh, you're, you're probably more familiar with something more like this. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. But when God said, let there be light, what he was really saying was all of this over here. These are the rules, the laws that govern electric and magnetic fields that produce light. We attribute it to Maxwell, this guy Maxwell. All he did was discover it. He figured out that that's what God was saying that gave rise to light, right? I'm not going to explain all that stuff to you. It would take the whole rest of the time. But I just wanted you, it was fun. I just wanted you to see that there's a lot going on behind the scenes that makes this light thing actually work. Um, so speaking about light, in, in Genesis 1, verse 16, and God made the two greater light, the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, that greater light we call our sun. Fun facts about the sun. Uh, 93 million miles away from us. It takes light which travels at 186,000 miles per second, a full eight minutes to get from the sun to us. 
Now, it's really good that it's that far away because you see how blinding it is even now, right? If we were much closer to it, it would be overwhelming. Um, the sun consists mostly of hydrogen, which is also good because every second it's converting about 4 million tons of hydrogen into helium. And that's what's producing the great amount of energy. I'm going to talk about it. It's a, it's a giant fusion reactor is what it is. We'll talk briefly about that just so you get the idea. And it's really big. The vast majority of the mass, almost all of the mass in the solar system is in the sun. A million Earths could fit inside that sun. All right? Which is also really good because it's burning fuel at a horrendous rate and it needs to be really big for it to continue to go on, right? Um, this fusion reaction that we talk about is basically where you're taking a, a couple of atoms of some kind, smashing them all together, getting different products out with a whole bunch of energy. Now, the reason you get a bunch of energy out of it is that there's slightly less mass in the products of the reaction than there was going into the reaction. And it's all governed by this famous Einstein relationship, the mass-energy equivalency, E equals mc squared. You've probably even heard of that. Here's how you need to understand that. First of all, c is the speed of light, which is a big number. I, I just told you about that, right? c squared, then, c times c, is a really big number. And so what this is saying, to get the energy equivalence of a, of a certain amount of mass, is you've got to multiply the mass by the square of the speed of light. So a small amount of mass equates to a huge amount of energy. Now that was a really cool idea God had because what that means is he doesn't have to use a whole lot of mass in this sun to create a whole lot of energy for us. So that thing can go on burning for a really long time. Very convenient, don't you think? So, so there's that. Uh, getting back to Genesis 1.16 and then the lesser light to rule the night we call the lesser light the moon. Some fun facts about the moon. It's 240,000 miles, about a quarter million miles away from us. Uh, the mass, the, the gravitational pull of the moon is about one-sixth of that of, of the Earth. Uh, those relationships actually turn out to be really important in the whole business of, of life on Earth as well. We'll talk a little bit more about some of that later. Uh, the moon is the, is the primary cause of, of the tidal flows in our, in our waterways. Okay, any of you uh, watermen out there, you know you're always checking your charts for what the tides are doing. The moon is causing all that tidal action, and, and that's an important element as well going forward. A uh, little tidbit that I learned, actually, this was a fairly recent discovery on my part. I hadn't realized that because of the complex interaction, gravitational interaction between the moon and the earth, the moon is actually get, getting a boost in energy and sliding away from us ever so slightly every year, one and a half inches. It's not going to change a whole lot, right? But it is, right? Uh, at the same time, the Earth, but under the same influence, is slowing down its rotation ever so slightly, just very minute amount, not that you'll ever notice in any of our lifetimes. But it was just an interesting fact. I threw that in there for no extra charge. Um, and then almost as an afterthought, it seems, as you read it, oh, and, and yes, and he made the stars too. Uh, this is the Milky Way galaxy. This is the galaxy that we live in. Uh, around here, you, you can actually, in some places, see it in the night sky. I had forgotten what that looked like till I moved here. I was living in suburban Philadelphia, and there was so much ambient light, you could hardly see any stars up there. And then we moved into a, the rural neighborhood down in Mechanicsville, 
and there's like no street lights. Like, wow, you know, the skies just open up. But this Milky Way galaxy itself contains somewhere around 200 billion stars. That's quite an afterthought, don't you think? Well, and it's even more than that, because that's just our galaxy. Look at what we've seen with the aid of our Hubble telescope recently. Uh, these blobs of light that you see in this picture, these aren't stars. These are galaxies, all right? The heavens declare the glory of God. There, we're guessing there's some 200 plus billion galaxies in the universe. Actually, I've read some more recent estimates. It might be closer to a trillion or two. It's a lot of stuff out there, a lot of stars. These Our sun, by the way, is actually only a moderately sized star. That's very average as stars go, as big as it is. Anyway, it's okay to be wowed by some of this stuff, right? Um, so, so that's looking at the vastness of space, right? Well, now let's go look, go in the opposite direction. We want to look at, at the microscopic level of what makes life work. So God made the plants and animals, each according to its kind, which is a term, as you read through Genesis 1, appears several times. Isn't he cute? And I had the koala. Yeah, adorable. So what makes any of this stuff work? At the... Fundamental level, you have this DNA molecule thing that you may have heard of, right? Well, this DNA is amazing stuff and contains the, it, it's the building, the fundamental building blocks of life are a result of the encoding in the DNA molecule. There's some 300 or 3 billion base pairs, these chemicals that comprise this DNA molecule in each DNA. That's about one and a half gigabytes of data in one DNA molecule. Uh, as a basis of comparison, this entire brief with all the high D, high definition uh, pictures and everything, that's uh, 30 some megabytes of data, all right? So there's a lot of information packed into, into DNA molecule. And this is occurring, this diagram, for those of you who are into organic chemistry and whatever, maybe make sense to you. It, it really doesn't make sense to me. I just included it so that you could be wowed by how complicated all this stuff is, right? Um, in your body, there's somewhere around 75 trillion cells. Some of you bigger folks out there, maybe more like 100 trillion. But in each one of the cells, there's this DNA stuff. Every cell contains DNA in it. Now, you can go do the math later if you want. But that's a lot of information packed into your body. And all of this is really essential to the whole operation. And it gets even more fascinating and complicated when you really get into it. Because this DNA molecule actually goes through a replication process. Entirely essential as your cells re uh, replace themselves, as the old cells die, uh, new cells need to be created and we need to get the propagation of this DNA information so the cells know what to do, right? And so this complicated replication process, again, don't even understand half of it my own self. Uh, some of you bio majors probably could explain it better. My point of showing it, though, is to, so that you realize there is a lot going on to make that replication process happen. And it's happening all the time in 75 trillion cells worth of, of your body. And where this all happens 
is in the individual cell. Now, in fairness, well, I, sometimes I feel a little sorry for Darwin because there's so much that he didn't know. Back in his day, the individual cell was just a little blob. It was a black box. He, he didn't know that there was anything going on in there particularly interesting. All right? In fact, uh, uh, Lehigh professor Michael Behe wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. Great book. I, I recommend it highly if, if you're at all interested in this stuff. Um, basically, what he's saying is that the individual cell is a very complicated machine. It does a couple of things. One is it performs a particular body function. So you have blood cells, you have brain cells, you have muscle cells, all these different kinds of cells specifically designed and engineered according to the DNA blueprint to do a job so that your body works, right? At the same time, it's a DNA factory so that you can keep making these cells according to the blueprint so that everything continues to work. Now, here's the, here's the importance in understanding all of this stuff. Um, what we have is a situation of irreducible complexity. All right, think about this. Follow through this reasoning with me now. You have these two highly complex interdependent entities necessary for life. You need DNA and the cell. A cell cannot exist without the DNA blueprint. The DNA cannot exist, or let alone replicate, if it doesn't have its host cell. We don't have natural processes that will create either one of those two things. None of this just happens ever anywhere. The only way we get any of this stuff is because life produces life. It'd be like this. Some, some people have used this analogy of trying to explain away this, the appearance of this complicated DNA and cellular structure in living things. Imagine that a tornado goes sweeping through a junkyard full of metal and random parts of stuff, and out of it comes a Boeing airliner. Right? How many tornadoes would you need before you get your airliner? Take as long as you want, people, I'm telling you. It ain't ever going to happen, right? In fact, the natural processes tend to mitigate against that level of complexity. The natural processes tend to break all that stuff down in actual fact. And it's only preserved in the, in the confines of a living creature itself. This is the way Behe himself defines this concept of in irreducible complexity. It's the innate characteristic of a single system composed of many precisely matched interacting parts necessary for basic system functions wherein the absence of any one of the parts causes the system to cease functioning. All that complicated stuff, and I didn't even show you the, the half of it, right, of what's going on in the cell. You take any of those little pieces out of it, some specific protein here or a piece of the DNA there, and the whole thing starts falling apart. It just doesn't work. Okay, so... Um, I want to look now, too, at some, some of the features of the universe that appear tuned for life. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's sort of just so, amazingly enough. And there's, there's, hundreds of, there's a couple hundred of these specific things that we could look at. I'm going to look at a handful of them. But I want to show you what a couple of our modern scientists have said about such things. Stephen Hawking is a modern uh, physicist. Um, 
brilliant, one of the most brilliant people around, honestly. And he said this, the remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers, these parameters for the various forces and systems in the universe, seem to have been very finely adjusted. Mm Mm-hmm, indeed. Um, In fact, he said some things that lead me to believe the hound of heaven was after him because I think he's beginning to see that it doesn't just... That doesn't just happen. Um, Richard Dawkins is uh, more in the biology area. He says, biology is the study of complex things that appear to have been designed for a purpose. You understand that Richard Dawkins is a hardcore atheist. He runs around like, you know, just uh, uh, trying to bash uh, Christian faith and any kind of faith in God all the time. But even he realizes that there's this appearance of design. Now, he'll go and try and explain it all away, foolishly, but um, even he will acknowledge that, that appearance of design. So let's look at some of these things. Again, this is but a few. I could go on for, for days on, on some of these things. The ones I want to look at, though, are, are the way gravity works. It's an inverse square law. I'll explain that, and it's exactly that. Uh, we'll talk about some of these Goldilocks zone uh, you remember your, your kitty story, right, with the, with the bears and, and this parge was too hot and this parge was too cold and this, this parge is just right. Well, there's a number of things about where we live that are just right. And uh, the Earth's atmosphere, we'll take a look at its composition. We'll t- take another look at our, our friend Moon. And uh, so here we go. Gravitational force equation. Don't worry about a whole lot of this, but I do want to bring your attention to this little thing. That two right there. It's really important that that's a two. You really, really care that that's a two. You may not know that you care, but let me explain to you why you care. Again, cutting through a lot of the techno babble, what that really means is that you can have stable orbits. Stable orbits kind of like the one that our Earth is in as it goes around the sun. Our Earth can travel around the Sun in its near-circular orbit pretty much indefinitely because of this relationship. If that number was anything but two, a little more, a little less, the Earth would do one of two things. It would either spiral in to the Sun and be completely burned up, or it would go careening off into interstellar space, will become just a cold, dark ice ball, Neither one of which is particularly friendly to human life as as we understand it, right? So the way the gravity works, really important that it's inverse square law. Um, Now this Goldilocks thing. So here we have our solar system, right? The big sun over there. Uh, Earth is right here in 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 the middle of the green, the just right section. If it were a little closer, like where Venus is, Uh, that's too hot. Uh, You tend to boil off all your water. You you wouldn't have the liquid water effects. It's really hot in Venus, hundreds of degrees. You'd be sweating profusely, right? (laughs) Um, On the other hand, Mars, a little too far away, really cold there. Uh, All your liquid water would tend to be more like ice all the time. And uh, you you, you think it's been cold around here lately, right? You should try it out on Mars sometime. Anyway, so we're in the Goldilocks zone, the habitable zone, this place where we can actually exist. Also, note that it's not a real uh, wide 
area. Now, there is a little bit of eccentricity to our orbit. It's not a perfect circle, but it's circular enough that we stay in that nice Goldilocks zone throughout the entirety of our orbit around the sun. Very convenient, don't you think? Here's another convenient thing about where we are. If you consider our Milky Way galaxy, this is sort of a, a computer uh, creation of what, what we would think it would look like if you could get up on top of it and then look down. It's a, pretty much a classic spiral galaxy, lots of them in the universe. But the key thing is where in it we are. So again, over here you see the red X. That's about where the sun is. You can notice it's sort of not, it's, it's out in that more open area. There's not a lot of other star activity in our area. If you were anywhere near that central core, that's just got so many stars and so much cosmic radiation and it's just a mess in there. Uh, we, we'd all be fried, um, despite our magnetic field and all that, we'd just be completely overwhelmed. Uh, also, there, we think there's a, a black hole in the middle there and, and, and it's not good to get sucked into a black hole either, right? But even in the spiral arms, there's clusters of galaxies and places where it is intensely hostile to, uh, to human life. But over here, out where we are, we're kind of uh, pretty much out on our own, more or less. The nearest star is a few uh, light years away, light years away. So that's really good, because what it means is we are under the influence primarily of our of our host star, the sun, is the main thing that drives everything that's going on in, in our planet from, a, from a, a starlight radiation perspective. So that, that's a really good thing too. And then let's look at the composition of the atmosphere. You may not realize that the vast majority of it is nitrogen. Actually a pretty good thing because nitrogen is an important part of the DNA molecule along with oxygen which is in fairly abundant supply. Good thing that that's got a lot of it because we could really use that, you know. That's what you're really breathing, right? Your, your body uses the oxygen. Um, interesting though, you should know, that it's good that it's not mostly oxygen because a mostly uh, oxygenated atmosphere um, a couple of phenomenon that would happen that would be not friendly. One, things would rust a lot faster, right? Rust is an oxidation process, so things would rust a lot more quickly. But more, more importantly is fires would burn much more intensely and much more rapidly, and it would get out of control in a hurry. Uh, it could easily get to be a big, big fireball. Oh, wait, wait, I got to go back. Oh, I was going back, sorry. I'm lost. Here we go. Um, the other thing you need to know is it's convenient. You never even think about it. You just take it for granted. But this atmosphere that's mostly nitrogen and oxygen, those two elements are transparent to light. I can see you. You can see me. We can see where we're going because these gases are transparent at the visible wavelengths. Also, you like your little phones and your little smartphones and all that kind of... It's good that they're transparent to radio waves pretty much too. That's how the smartphones communicate with radio waves, right? Interesting, too, that all the rest of it is just a sliver. Everything else combined is maybe a percent, including these greenhouse gases, um, which is a good thing, right? Uh, Venus has a lot of greenhouse gas trouble, so it's even hotter there than it would otherwise be just from being close to the sun. Uh, fortunately for us, the methane and other gases like that tend to escape out of the atmosphere, so they don't collect there very much. And carbon dioxide, while it would, 
um, is also very limited. It's like less than a tenth of a percent of the atmosphere. And, and the thing is, that's needed for plant life. Plants love carbon dioxide. They breathe carbon dioxide like we breathe oxygen, which is a really good balance, right? It's a, it's a nice symbiotic re relationship between animals and plants. Plants breathe in carbon dioxide, breathe out oxygen. We breathe in oxygen, breathe out carbon dioxide. We've got a good little deal going here, don't you think? Okay, uh, what else? Uh, the moon, getting back to the moon, it's in a near circular orbit around the Earth. Really good that that's nearly circular because if it was highly uh, uh, elliptical, then there would be times when it was so close to us that its gravitational force were, would be tending to rip us all apart. Uh, certainly the, the oceans would be sloshing around so violently, those nice little tides that we have would be tremendously accentuated. And then at other times it would be so far away there would be hardly any tides at all. Turns out though that these tides are critical. The tidal zones are a critical part of our ecosystem. There's a lot going on there. Won't get into all of that. Some of you probably already know some of the things that are going on there. Really important though to life on the planet. Um, also the moon is a, a sufficiently uh, 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 large enough and in the right position where it provides a stabilizing influence on our own ro uh, rotation so that we have a very consistent rotation, the seasons, the, the daily changes of temperatures are all very much contained within a very livable zone. All right? So that's the moon's contribution as well. <clears throat> now I want to look at a different concept as well now in uh, some time that we have left. This idea that the universe can be observed and can be understood. And I say, yeah, what's the big deal? Well, it, doesn't, it didn't have to be that way. We could live in a, in a universe that was impossible to understand. Or that we could be in a place where we couldn't even observe it to even try to understand. Let me explain to you some of the stuff I'm talking about. Um, Getting back to, to our friend Albert Einstein, you know, this is the guy with relativity and all this kind of stuff. The thing that amazed him, that really stumped him about the whole business, the most incomprehensible thing about the world is that it's comprehensible. He thought it was totally remarkable that he could even understand it. Um, okay, so let's look at some of this comprehensibility thing. We have an unchanging God, the scripture says. I should have put the uh, scripture reference in there. Sorry, I forgot to do that. Anyway, the, the, the scripture says that we have an unchanging God. Same yesterday, today, tomorrow. And he has created an orderly, consistent universe. Completely consistent with his character, in fact. And those physical laws, like the ones governing light that I showed earlier, and the ones governing gravity, and there's a bunch of them like that, these laws are discoverable. I can state my hypotheses, do my scientific experiment, take my data, and verify whether I was right with my hypothesis or not. The scientific method works. And in fact, if you go back in the history of science, a lot of the early scientists were Christians, in fact, because they believed in this God who was very orderly and consistent, and they figured, you know what? I'll bet our guide made a system in this universe that we can understand. And they set out exploring to try and figure it out. And in a large portion, we have learned a lot of things. It's understandable. It's not so, it's, it's amazingly complex, and yet, in some places, it's elegantly simple. 
that equation I showed you for gravity, you may not really fully understand it, but it's not that complicated of an equation. It's got some simple multiplications, it's got a, a division in it and a, a, an exponent. Basic algebra for the most part, right? And with that, you can understand how gravity works. You can look at that equation and, and understand what those relationships actually mean. And it's predictable. If anybody's, any engineers in the room? Yeah, okay, engineers. Your, your whole vocational life is predicated on the fact that the world's predictable. You can design things based on the scientific physical principles that we know, and you know that it's going to work because it's predictable. It behaves in a consistent fashion. So that's our comprehensible cosmos. Let's look at the observability side of it. It turns out, it's really interesting, that a lot of the factors that, that are conducive to life are also conducive to scientific discovery. Let's look at a couple of them. The fact that we have a transparent atmosphere. What that does is that allows us to see the stars in all of their glory, right? We wouldn't know about all of that if we couldn't see that, at least until we stuck the Hubble telescope up there. But we wouldn't have even known that there was anything to look at, right? The fact that we're in the uh, galactic Goldilocks zone. Not only are we not getting bombarded by the cosmic radiation, which would be so hazardous to our health, it also is in a place where we can actually see most of the universe because we don't have a lot of ambient light in the way from all the other stars in our own galaxy. But the most fun one, really, is this bit about total eclipses, which we just had one of these, not, you know, like last year, right? It's very interesting that this moon, which is just the right size and distance from the Earth to really promote life on Earth, and this sun, which is just the right size and distance from Earth to, to put us in the Goldilocks zone in the solar system, those, uh, that geometry is just such that occasionally that orbit of the moon puts it right in front of the big old burning ball, the sun, and almost exactly covers it up. The moon and the sun are almost exactly the same size as they appear to us. I'm going to show you a little bit more about that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But, but Jay Richards, in, his, in the book Privileged Planet, there's a video for that as well that I own, is, um, he, says, he says it this way. He says, it, it kind of looks like a conspiracy rather than a coincidence. Yeah, it is a conspiracy. We have a God who, who made an ordered world, put a bunch of people in it, and then said, man, I want to show off all this cool stuff. You know, it'll be fun for them to figure this stuff out, right? So the observability and the survivability play together in so many ways. Let's look at this solar eclipse phenomenon. So there's the big fireball way out there, right? And the moon, way smaller, much smaller, uh, even smaller than the Earth. But it's so much closer to the Earth that it comes around and, like I said, just completely blocks out the sun every once in a while in its orbit. And we get that. Well, it turns out that solar eclipses are very handy if you're trying to figure out what's going on in the universe. One of the things, we learned a whole lot about what's going on in the sun, how it works, by observing the things that we can see once the blinding light of the sun is taken away. 
There's all kinds of stuff going on in a chromosphere, things that are going on just on the outside of, of, the, of the sun proper. All very interesting stuff. Really promoted our understanding of what goes on in stars, inside of stars. We also, from this phenomenon, were able to verify Einstein's general relativity theory. One of the implications of that was that light would be bent by gravitation. So we were able to look at stars that were just right next to the sun in the distant field and observe that indeed the light traveling from those, uh, they, they appeared to be in a different position because the light was being bent. Now you remember the gravitational equation that I showed before was dependent on masses, the mass of things involved. Light doesn't have any mass, but yet it's still affected. I could go into a bunch of discussion about how space isn't really empty like it appears, that there's some actual fabric to it. It would take a long time. It would blow your mind. But it's fun stuff to think about, really. <laughs> really, it is. And, and then I, I, I blew, in work a couple weeks ago, I blew a, a woman's mind with this thought, this last idea. The only place in our solar system where this phenomenon can happen, where it can be observed, is the place that actually happens to have observers. Right? Nowhere else. There are other planets, and they have their own moons, but none of them are just so, so that in the relative position and the size of their moon, that it ever manifests a total eclipse. Uh, that was also mentioned in that pri privileged planet uh, material. So that, that's a fascinating thing. It's kind of funny, you know, just so, right? Um, Okay, um, let's kind of wrap it around, bring it back to, to what really matters in the grand scheme of things. Because it was pointed out to me after the following uh, service, a lot of the stuff I'm talking about in the long run doesn't really matter. It's all getting burned up anyway, right? Peter says, uh, I forget where it was in, in one of his letters. In, in the end, all of this stuff is going to melt with a fervent heat, right? But it's important to understand that this Jesus, that's in our mission statement that Dennis was talking about earlier, he is the creator and the sustainer of all of this stuff. This is what it says in Colossians 1. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Other translations say in him all things consist or subsist. It's as though Jesus himself were just sitting here with the whole universe in his hand. He's just holding it all together. Every individual atom in the universe, he is holding together. We call it a, a, the strong nuclear force, keeping the, the nucleons all together in the nucleus. Yeah, it's Jesus is holding up the law of the strong force to make all of that work moment by moment throughout time. Uh, perhaps even, well, no perhaps about it. Even more importantly, the same creator and sustainer is also the redeemer. If we look back in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this same Jesus, who, who went to the cross to make the purification for sins, 
and then rose again, leaving an empty tomb because death couldn't contain him. He's got infinite power in all of... He holds the universe together. He called it into being. He was the agent of creation. He is the agent of redemption as well. And that's really the bottom line in all this stuff because that has eternal implications for you. So if you happen to be one of the ones who walked in today and you thought you were an atheist, hopefully I've given you enough reason to question that and start thinking about what's really important in the grand scheme of things, your own mortality and your need for purification for sins. Uh, if you're in that situation today, I'd invite you to consider this Jesus, to repent of your current selfish life, put your sins aside, turn to this great and powerful God that we have uh, known as Jesus Christ. And with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us, and we'll be done. Our Heavenly Father, we do love you. We are in awe of you. Uh, Lord, your power is so amazing. You have so much energy invested in just this physical universe. And it's not even a dent in, in your power, your ability, your authority. Uh, you command all of this. You uphold you enforce these laws moment by moment in your physical universe. And you provided a way. You provided a way for us to be reconciled to you, even though our sins were getting in the way. Uh, this Jesus, who was also involved in the creation of all things, came into this world, took on flesh to be as one of us, and then gave himself on our behalf. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for that. All of this boggles the mind. And, uh, and, and yet, Lord, there it is. Uh, if there's any here today, Lord, I pray that if they do not yet really know Jesus, that this perhaps would be the day. Uh, Lord, we just give you the glory. Uh, we love you. We thank you for your uh, gracious involvement in our life and all the many blessings you've given to us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thanks. Thank you. Praise God. Praise God.